0: Thanks for downloading this podcast from the University of Portsmouth. I'm John Worsey, a writer, and in Life Solved, we're asking the big questions about our world, from politics to technology, our bodies and our environments. To do this, we're snatching interviews with researchers who are challenging existing ideas and seeking new ways of solving the world's problems. In this episode, I'm hearing how a resource we take for granted in the UK is the deciding factor in individual power and mobility in other parts of the world.
1: Very, very powerful people will always have access to water, so it's always the most vulnerable, the most marginal, who have problems accessing water. It's a resource that allows me to look at politics, economics, the whole gambit.
0: I'll be finding out how one researcher is adding complexity to how goals for a sustainable world are made and maintained. And I'll be exploring how climate change presents real challenges to people and communities living without access to clean, safe water.
1: There is definitely, I think, a lot of migration of people because climate is changing. So if everybody is constructing sources that are drawing on the aquifers, that will have a huge impact on their recharge rates.
0: And we'll be discussing the all-important question. Once sanitation's upgraded and installed, whose responsibility is it to maintain the system for the benefit of all? water is a lot more political than many of us might consider. It seems there's plenty of water here in the UK, and on a damp winter's day, it's hard to forget that. In the UK, it arrives in our homes on demand. Clean, clear and plentiful the moment we fancy filling that kettle for a cup of tea or soaking in a warm bath. But what we might take for granted is the difference that clean, safe water in our homes makes for our opportunities and social mobility. Imagine a society where only the wealthiest can guarantee direct access to this basic necessity. How much would your reliance on this vital resource occupy your time, energy and thoughts instead?
1: In this country, I think we are, we're not as connected, whereas I think when it's an everyday reality of having to queue up to collect water in jerry cans and to carry these really heavy jerry cans of water back to your compound, you're just much more connected to water yeah. and you have to make decisions with this jerry can of water. Am I going to wash my children? Am I going to cook with it? Am I going, are we going to drink with it? You, you're just more aware when you have to carry something and queue for it. I think in this country in particular, we take water completely for granted Although in this country we've always got bang on about the weather, we don't really understand the water cycle. So for me, looking at water has allowed me to look at the real challenges of managing a resource that moves, that, that can be used for multiple different purposes. So it's allowed me to look at the power relations in terms of access to water resources. And in many countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, climate change is having a real impact, so it allows me to explore issues of change.
0: That's Dr Julia Brown, she's a geographer in the School of the Environment, Geography and Geosciences here at the University of Portsmouth. She's focused on how developing countries manage their natural resources. When she spent time in Africa, her outlook on the relationship between social power and basic resources was changed forever.
1: I think when you travel around Africa as well, you realise that people don't get water out of a tap like we do. They have to queue up for water. They have to carry it. So it's it's also a realisation of looking at development through the lens of water. And that's why I, I think water is a really powerful tool. It allows you to look and understand society mm-hmm. through water. So, for example, very, very powerful people will always have access to water. So it's it's always the most vulnerable, the most marginal who have problems accessing water. So I think it's a... It's a resource that allows me to look at politics, economics, the whole gambit of, yeah. of things.
0: After finishing her PhD in South Africa, Julia travelled to Uganda, where she saw firsthand a big problem with the way the rollout of a sustainable, clean water supply was working.
1: I was in a town called Masindi, and I happened to meet somebody. She was um, a Dutch lady who, was, who just started working for this NGO called The Water Trust. We just met over a beer and she was telling me about the problems of community-based management. Most of my work has, has been about rural water yeah. management. So when you're working in rural sub-Saharan Africa, that is where the highest levels of poverty really are. So it's, it is linking poverty to access to water.
0: In 2012, Julia started her research work in Uganda. She learned how voluntary water source associations there were collecting maintenance fees for the village pumps. Some villages had one supply, others had many, but trust was a big issue in the way these funds were managed. Julia came across anecdotes of treasurers with their hands in the coffers and people reluctant to stump up cash when others weren't doing the same.
1: What we found was only about three out of a hundred water sources actually had enough funds for any major repairs. Only a really small amount had any funds collected at all. So what this meant was if these water sources went down and they were broken, They would have to often spend two or three months going around everybody trying to collect money from people. So what this research really was showing was just how challenging it is to manage things communally, how difficult it is to go around and collect money from people. And when people say, "I'll come back next week, I'll have money," and you go back and they, "Oh, we still don't have money," it also showed the suspicions around money. I think that's something that's really come out from the research. So in many ways, it's the research is about these rosy conceptualizations of community in Uganda and that everybody you know, works together nicely That's that's what you know, water aid tells us, that's what Comet Relief tells us, everyone's yes. smiley and happy. It's not just in Africa. I think trying to get people to voluntarily manage something yeah. is really difficult.
0: Julia gained an interesting insight into the psychology behind this when she collaborated with Dr. Mariah Vandenbroek. A microfinance project covered the upkeep of pumps and sanitation in one area, being paid in regular instalments by the community. Villagers were reluctant to pay out regularly when fixing a broken pump seemed like a one-time problem. This was about more than trust. It was a fundamental difference in cultural attitudes to finance, especially in cases where water managers were entitled to keep a percentage of those funds. In short, changing the system of payments successfully would also have needed a change in thinking.
1: take for granted people understand the concept of insurance that is not a concept that is normal or accepted in many parts of sub-saharan africa and then what happened was this water manager was then himself subjected to abuse his children had stones thrown at the they were bullied right. at the school because they didn't like the fact that somebody they thought was potentially benefiting from their funds so yeah. these are the challenges i think with having private operators involved is that you've got to understand the implications on them of disbanding a water user committee and having somebody potentially making some profits.
0: Even if government, NGO and private work is now providing greater access to secure safe water for communities, it's clear that this is only the first hurdle. I asked Julia what she thought the next biggest priority should be.
1: How to make sure people are maintaining these systems is, is what I'm interested in, regardless of whether it's a pipe system or a hand pump. I'm trying to make maintenance sexy, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So that's really what, as a researcher, you want to see is that your research has been taken up and is starting to inform policy. What I want, ultimately, is that when they're talking about achieving or realising the, the Sustainable Development Goals, the UN goals, it's also about maintenance and it's not just about extending yeah. the supply network. What I ultimately want is for NGOs and governments is to have really clear operation and maintenance plans that yeah. are properly costed and understood.
0: UN Sustainable Development Goals say all countries should have access to safe, clean drinking water. In Uganda... This often comes in the form of replacing hand-operated pumps with piped water. It's treated, chlorinated and transported to communal tap stands or homes.
1: We're now starting to see a change with more private actors coming in and looking to install piped water systems. But again, the issue with these piped water systems is they still need to be maintained and managed. Right. So that, I think... In large parts of sub-Saharan Africa, they are still reliant on the hand pump, but many governments in sub-Saharan countries, particularly, for example, like Uganda, want to move away from hand pumps because of these problems. So I'd like to think in the next five, ten years, we will see people having access to piped water. But my concerns with that are it's all very well to install a new system. You still have to have a plan as to how these are going to be maintained, because if these systems go down, then you are back to square one, collecting water from swamps or dirty streams. What a lot of governments do want to see now is seeing these systems upgraded. So you may have communal tap stands and then the potential to extend those to compounds. Yep. But then people would have to, that's more for the people with more money who can afford those connection, sure. those connection fees. Okay. So we're hoping we can start to see a change and an improvement in quality of access.
0: So it seems there's still a difference in who gets what, where wealthier communities are able to afford better facilities. Whatever the funding structure, there's a secondary problem to well-meaning private enterprises. Making a natural resource a commercial interest invites controversy and sensitivity, as Julia explained.
1: The whole question of having private companies involved in water delivery is very, very contentious. I mean, in our country, I don't even think people always appreciate this, that the country is split into these natural monopolies.
0: Mm. So in
1: this this part of the country, we are Portsmouth Water and Southern Water, which is in charge of the... And wastewater. So, yes, these are companies that are making profits. There's been lots of controversies around privatization in many Latin American countries. So, big French water companies coming in and taking over the supply. So, I think, on particularly municipal water, mm. there has been a lot of controversies around privatization. What we're seeing the stuff I was referring to is um, much more maybe entrepreneurs from within communities or local entrepreneurs getting into the business of water but that in itself even saying the business of water is still controversial because making a profit from a resource that people have to rely on for their survival of course, it has to be managed yeah. and regulated. But if NGOs don't have the funds to maintain systems, and if the government certainly don't have those funds, and community-based management has proven quite problematic, because it's very difficult to get people to work together and, on a voluntary basis to manage yeah. these resources, then you, you do start thinking, well, is there an opportunity for the private sector? But how do we make sure that that system, they don't just leave overnight because it's not, it's not making money for yeah. them? So I think it's so problematic.
0: It's clear that mechanisms of behaviour and maintenance are essential for success in meeting UN Sustainable Development Goals. But what about the root causes of the issue? And what does this mean for populations of similar economies?
1: In Uganda, since I've been going there, the seasons are changing. So um, for a lot of, because it's primarily rain-fed agriculture that's the backbone of the economy. So when the rains don't come when they're meant to, or you think they're coming, and then they suddenly stop, that has a massive impact on people's livelihoods. And all of these systems are dependent on livelihoods and people having money to pay for water. So that has a huge implication. There is definitely, I think, a lot of migration of people because climate is changing, it's becoming drier in the north, but also the biggest issue I've mentioned um, is definitely this not being able to rely on when the rains are coming. So being able to predict is, is a big issue. And, I mean, a groundwater, yes, it will have an impact, but I think the biggest impact on groundwater levels is probably the lack of planned infrastructure. So if everybody is constructing sources that are drawing on the on the aquifers, that will have a huge impact on their recharge rates. Climate change is happening, and it's unpredictable. But what's also interesting when you're in Uganda is that people don't tend to blame us in the West for climate change. They seem to say, oh, it's our fault because we cut down all these trees. So it's quite interesting that narrative is they're almost sort of blaming themselves and, and I'm like yes that, that has you you know that definitely has had a huge impact but you know this is part of a global problem so yeah. there needs to be a bit more sharing of responsibility I think.
0: So where do the opportunities lie to make a real difference?
1: The research that me and Mariah are interested in doing is, is looking at how you can start to make s- small changes and incremental changes in behavior but that's a lifetime project.
0: Thanks to Julia for taking us through her research and for sharing her findings. It seems vital that private organizations and government bodies alike continue working with communities on maintaining the changes they implement, especially where vital natural resources are concerned. Find out more about life-changing work on our website, port.ac.uk forward slash research. Next time on Life Solved from the University of Portsmouth, we're hearing about a little-explored threat in Britain's climate change future. There's lots of issues around yeah. fire in Britain, and I think a lot of people don't realise how vulnerable Britain is and might be in the future. Tell us what you think via social media. You can share this podcast using the hashtag #LifeSolved, or maybe just share the big idea with a friend. If you subscribe to your podcast app, you'll also get each episode of Life Solved automatically. Catch you next time.